All right, um, this morning we're going to dive back into our Advent study. Um, and if you guys have not been with us, we've been in this, this whole uh, series throughout Advent where we've been discussing on a weekly basis um, these different aspects of, um, of Advent. Um, Advent, if you don't know, is this word that means arrival. And Advent is this season on the church calendar where we look back at the first Advent, which was Jesus's first coming as a baby, like the arrival of Christ as a baby in this manger, and then the implications that his birth had on mankind. But then we also, like we've been talking about, we look ahead. We, we look forward to his second advent, his return, when he'll come again, except for next time, he's actually going to be taking his church with him to our eternal home. Amen? Pretty awesome. And so we live in this, this in-between season, this in-between time. We live in between these two Advents, the first, and then we're awaiting the second. And this in-between time is this time of waiting, again, for Jesus to come back. Like what, and in this in-between time, we're experiencing, we have the opportunity to experience his hope and his peace, his joy and his love while we wait. And so we call this series In the Waiting, and we're talking about how we partake in these things in the in-between, in the middle. Uh, Advent traditionally, like I said, had these four themes. And so we've been looking at these four themes. We talked about hope one week, peace one week, and joy last week. And then this morning, we're going to talk about love. But I want to recap real quick the last three weeks for us. Um, and I want to light the Advent candles. And so the first week, we talked about hope. Who was here for that week? Yeah, awesome. Let's see what the attrition rate, rate was. Uh, the second week, we talked about peace. Who was here? Well, more of you were here for peace. Great. Um, and then last week we talked about joy. Who was here last week when I talked about my joy problem? <laughs> we talked about the first week hope and hope carrying us through our difficulties, that we have this hope of eternal life that can actually carry us through the darkest days of our life. And this hope is anchored to who? To who? Who's our hope anchored to? To Jesus. And then we talked about the peace of Christ and this peace ruling in our hearts over our fears, over our anxieties, over uh, our stress. And we considered how we're to allow the peace of Christ to rule and nothing else. Allow the peace of Christ to rule. He is the Prince of Peace. And how we talked about the, the, this holistic approach to peace with God involves us being at peace with God so that we can receive the peace of God and that we can live that peace out and be reconciled with one another and live at peace with others. And then last week we talked about the joy of Christ. And I talked about my own personal problem with joy. And we considered how the joy of Christ is found in the most surprising places. Like even in the Christmas story, you see these angels show up and they begin to herald this announcement of good news, of great joy to who? A bunch of shepherds in a field. And the angel said that this would be the sign to them. The, this was the, 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 the message that the angel sent, that, that this is where you will find the good news of great joy, that it would be with this baby wrapped in rags lying in a manger. And uh, we talked about uh, the fact that we often look for happiness and joy to find satisfaction uh, in, in various comforts, even with regards to consumerism and control. But um, what we often find is that joy, the true joy, 
The joy that Jesus brings is actually found in these surprising places, not in the places that we would expect it. And it's often found in hardship. It's often found in service. It's often found in surrender. And so last week we talked about how joy is something we choose, but we actually choose this joy by intentionally looking for the goodness of God in who he is and what he's done. Amen? And this week, we're going to conclude this, this whole series by uh, of these four weeks of Advent, and we're going to look at love, L-O-V-E, love. All we need is love, right? So would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Let's get this going. Jesus, uh, we just wonder at your great love for us. Lord, it's amazing that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for our sins so that in him, God, we would become your children and be made the righteousness of God. And it baffles me to realize that while we were cold and while we were even rebellious towards you, God, that you purposed this amazing plan of redemption in your heart, that we could be declared righteous, Jesus, through believing in you. And I thank you, God, that in your grace and in your mercy, that your arm, your strong arm, literally reached down to us long before our hearts even turned towards you. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your unconditional, your unchanging love towards us. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that we would just come into this deeper understanding of what the love of God towards us actually means. Lord, may your hand be upon this time this morning, and may your spirit lead each and every aspect of this gathering in your name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to tee off on a very well-known passage of Scripture, probably the most well-known passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. What do you guys think it is? Boom. Good job. Yeah, very good. I'm proud of you. Very good. Anybody know who Roland Stewart is? Anybody know that name? Roland Stewart? All right. Roland Stewart, uh, we can probably thank Roland Stewart for being the one who got John 3.16 to become the sort of mainstream verse that's used everywhere throughout the 70s and 80s. Uh, Roland was known as the Rainbow Man. Anybody now know who he is? Those of you who were alive in the 70s and 80s. Um, Roland Stewart was known as the Rainbow Man. This was a dude that would show up at every single major professional sporting event, including the Olympics, and he would try his best to get on TV, and he would do this by wearing this massive rainbow afro wig and a T-shirt that said Jesus saves with signs that said John 3.16 on them. And he would try his best to get in the camera shot at every sporting event he went. He traveled all over the world to get in front of cameras at sporting events to just hold up this sign uh, that, that said John 3.16 on it. The crazy thing about Roland Stewart, anybody know where he was born? <laughs> Spokane. So we've had a lot of crazies come out of this region. Roland came out of Spokane, Washington, um, and believe it or not, um, Roland, the sad part about the story is he's serving three life sentences in prison now um, for kidnapping. So uh, Roland made some poor decisions after he traveled the world holding up John 3.16. But it's guys like Roland Stewart, the rainbow man, that put this verse into pop culture. Like you see athletes writing it on their shirts, on their foreheads. I mean, Tim Tebow like wrote it underneath his eyes in his, um, in his last like college championship game. And 
it's become this stable verse that we see everywhere. And I think maybe the, the passage's notoriety has somewhat watered down its significance over the years because we've seen it everywhere. It's become a staple. Uh, I want to read, if you guys would turn with me to John three sixteen. it's going to be on the screens, but I'd love for you to open up your paper Bibles if you have them, or your digital Bibles. John three sixteen, and say word when you guys get there. You there? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For, but in order to... We celebrate what's known as the, the incarnate theological term that means God basically took on flesh. God became a man. God became incarnate. God embodied human form. And this is what John 3.16 says, that God so loved his creation. Now, understand that this, this phrase here, when he says so loved, he doesn't mean so much, even though that's the truth. What he actually means is that God in this way Loved his creation. In what way did he love him? And he goes on, that he gave his only son. God so loved, he loved his creation in this way that he sacrificed his only son. So God so loved his creation that he became one of us and took on flesh that he might redeem and save people. This is good news for us, right? And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, that he wasn't just a child born in a manger, he wasn't just a prophet, he wasn't just a good teacher, but that our God took on flesh, that he would become one of us in order to save us. And if you look around today and talk to people about religion, you'll you'll actually see that there's often this argument that Jesus is just one God among many gods. So there's dozens of different ways to the same God, and Jesus is just one of those ways. And in fact, that argument or that, that illustration, um, the, the illustration that's often used, is that all world religions are essentially climbing the same mountain to the same God. So it doesn't matter what religion that you're a part of or what God you're talking about, we're essentially all climbing the same mountain, we're reaching the same mountaintop, we're eventually all gonna arrive at the same God. And so they would say Christianity is sort of climbing one side of the mountain and they see, we see the mountain a certain way and then Muslims are climbing another side of the mountain. They see it a totally different way and the reality is in their minds that it's all the same mountain, that we're all climbing to the same God and this is often the argument, that we're all working towards the same God. But what makes Jesus so distinctly different from all other gods and all other religions What sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that our God actually descended the mountain and came to us. Our God came down to us. Like every other religion, go study it. It requires you to ascend the mountain yourself. Every other religion requires you in your own good efforts, in your own good works, or or by achieving some sort of like higher plane of self-awareness in your life, you name it, whatever religion it is, it requires you in some effort to climb the mountain to God, to work your way towards him, to earn your way to God by doing good things. But what sets Christianity apart is that our God descended the mountain, that he would become one of us in order to save us. Is that not crazy? This is Again, one of the things that sets Jesus apart is that this, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We, we rejoice that our God loved us so much 
that he descended the mountain, that he would take on human form, and that he would save and redeem his people. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, in, in ancient cultures, they always depict their gods descending the mountain to bring judgment and condemnation. And so, for instance, if Zeus was coming down from Mount, from Mount Olympus, it's like an oh crap moment, right? <laughs> like, if Zeus is coming down, um, he's coming down to actually terrorize humans when they did something wrong. He, he, he was known as the god of the sky, and so his weapon of choice was lightning bolts. And so he supposedly was coming down to hurt people for not doing the right thing. Like every ancient culture depicts this, that, that when God descends, when their God descends, when he comes down the mountain and he comes from the heavens, it's always to bring judgment and to bring condemnation. And yet Paul states that in Christ Jesus, we have no condemnation because our God descended the mountain, so to speak. He came out of the heavens. He took on human form, not to bring condemnation and judgment, but to actually bring about salvation, to redeem us, to bring about freedom and redemption. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. This incarnation, the reality that our God came down the mountain, that he took on human form, that he would not bring condemnation, but what it does say in John 3:16, that God so loved the world, that he came to us, not condemn, to condemn us, but to save us. And I love the imagery that God basically enters our mess. <laughs> that God enters the in-between time, that God enters the waiting time to bring hope, to bring peace and joy and love. If you guys look in 1 John chapter four, I wanna consider two things from this passage this morning. He says this, 1 John four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Capital G, note that, the God. Love is from the one and only God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not Love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest, became flesh among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So I want to think about two things from this passage this morning. One, I wanna think about God's response to you and I. And then two, I wanna think about our response to God. So God's response to us. Like what is God's response to you and I? To, to our sin, to our shame, to our guilt. And as we've already talked about before, God responded in love, his agape love. God so loved his creation that he came down the mountain, he came down not to condemn us but to save us. And you see this, all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve do what? They eat of the fruit that God told them not to from the tree that God told them not to eat from, and they sin. And they literally break relationship with God. And then what happens the minute they do it is they're, they're filled with shame, and they're filled with guilt, and what do they do? Anybody? They hide. Like in their shame and their guilt, they begin to hide and run from God. They try to cover themselves up. They try to get rid of their nakedness. And what do you see God do? God comes down into the garden. He shows up in the Garden of Eden. And they hear him. And they hide from his presence. 
They run from him, and he comes to find them and asks them, why the heck are you hiding? And we often see, uh, kind of see this backwards, honestly. We have this idea that when we sin, God actually hides from us. That we think he sort of distances himself from us, like he wants nothing to do with us because we're so dirty and rotten because somehow God is so ashamed of us. And so we assume we need to sort of clean ourselves up before we actually come near to God. But you look, even in the very beginning, in Genesis 3, after man sins and he's in his shame and his guilt and he's chilling with some sewn together fig leaves, They begin to distance themselves from God in their shame and their guilt. And listen to this, by God's mercy and God's grace, God reaches out. God engages them. And not only that, what do you see at the end of chapter three in Genesis there? God kills an animal in order to get the animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve up so they can wear clothes and not have to cover themselves in fig leaves. Like he clothes their nakedness and their shame, like by his grace. Like how stinking amazing is this? That God had every right to walk away from his creation that had turned their back on him and done what he had asked them not to do, but God saw them in their nakedness, he saw them in their shame, he saw them hiding from him, and he literally closed them in order for them to not feel the condemnation and the guilt that their decisions brought on themselves. Like what an amazing foreshadowing of what was to come. It was literally the foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice, that he would cover our shame and our guilt. Like eventually Jesus would be the sacrifice that would cover us so that we wouldn't have to run from God anymore or assume that God is running from us, but he would draw near to us and cover us up so that we would be restored in relationship with him. This is amazing news. So from the very beginning, our sin caused us to be filled with guilt and shame, and it led us to distance ourselves from God, and yet God always came down the mountain. He always came near. He always engaged. He always entered our mess. God always came down so he could save and redeem. Like, God always does the hard work. God always provides a way out of our shame and our guilt. From the very beginning, this is who our God is. First John 4, 9 and 10. Again, it says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. It became flesh among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might, what's the word that says there? So that we might, anybody? Live. This isn't like life so that you could get up another day and have breath in your lungs. This is a reference to eternal life, like true living through him. It goes on to say, verse 10, in this is love Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, that's a crazy word, right? Propitiation. Another fancy theological word that literally means to appease or to satisfy. And so it's this idea that that God came down the mountain from heaven, not to condemn and to judge, but to save. And that Jesus, by his sacrifice, he appeased. Like Jesus satisfied, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law that we would be free from shame and guilt, that we might be free from condemnation and free from judgment, that we no longer need to look at and identify with our guilt 
identify with our shame or identify with our condemnation because Jesus had actually clothed us in his righteousness. In Christ, we do not stand condemned before God. We don't face judgment in Christ because he was our the, the propitiation. He was the sacrifice. He, he appeased it. He satisfied the law. And this is really good news of great joy. This is the great news, good news of great joy. Like, can somebody please give me a dang amen about that? This is the good news of great joy. And this is another piece that actually sets us apart from other religions. Other religions would have systems of rules to actually appease their gods. Things that they had to do to appease the gods. And Christianity is a relationship with God. We don't have to appease God to receive his favor. He actually already showed us his love for us by sending his son, Jesus, to die on a cross in our place for our sins that the separation between us and God was appeased. It was satisfied, and we didn't have to do a dang thing except believe in Jesus. So at Christmas, we're not just celebrating the cute Christmas story, like the adorable little nativity scene with camels and wise men and donkey and Jesus in this raggly old barn. We celebrate the reality that God took on flesh so that he could become the sacrifice and save us. Paul says this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want to ask you a rhetorical question this morning for you to consider. Who would you die for? Who would you die for this morning? For most of you, that list is probably extremely short, right? Maybe some family, uh, at least some of them, right? <laughs> Maybe a friend or two that you would consider dying for. Maybe even if you're some noble person and out of some act of heroism in your life, you might be willing to sacrifice your life for a total stranger. Maybe if you saw like an oncoming bus about to hit somebody, maybe you'd jump out and push them out of the way and risk ending your own life to save them. But what about your enemies? Most of us in this room would not dare die for our enemies. We, we certainly wouldn't die for Hitler. We wouldn't, we wouldn't even... We wouldn't die for somebody who's betrayed you. You wouldn't die for somebody who's hurt you in the past. You wouldn't dare sacrifice your life for people like that. And what about your political opponent, opponents? What about people on Facebook that say all kinds of stuff that tick you off? You wouldn't dare die for them? What about a total stranger that you might push out of the way of an oncoming bus, but let's just say you happen to know that the stranger's a child rapist? There's no way. And this is exactly what Jesus did. The Bible says that while we were still a mess in our sins, while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the reality that if you ever doubt the love of God for you, look no further than the cross of Jesus. The cross of Christ should satisfy all doubts 
of God's love for us. And this is the reality that God loved us so much that while we were still sinners, while we were still in opposition to him, while we were still his enemy, while we were still naked and ashamed, while we were still a mess in our sins, while we were still running from him as fast and as far away as we could get, God descended and God entered into the mess and God began to pursue us by taking on a body of flesh in order that he might save us. And so at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ, but ultimately what we're celebrating is that God came, that he was born, that he might die for you and I, and that's really good news. And I want to look at the second part of this passage, is then what is our response to God? What should our response to this marvelous, extravagant, and generous love be? And the answer is super simple. We're actually to love one another. So if you look back at that 1 John 4 passage, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Like if the love of God has been so generously poured out on us, it should overflow onto those that are around us. Our, our love for each other should be this overflow of his extravagant love that God poured into on top of, around you and I. And Jesus actually talks about this a lot, this idea of loving one another as a response to God's love for us. It's this common theme for Jesus. And so I wanna look at a couple of these examples. Somebody came to Jesus and asked him what the greatest commandment was and what was Jesus' reply in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he said, this is the great and first commandment. And then he said, and the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've talked about this a few months ago, that Jesus sort of sums all of it up right here, all the laws, all the commandments. He sort of sums them up into two simple commands, love God, love others. And so the law of God is summed up into loving God and loving one another as Jesus loved us. Like instead of fixating on laws, we actually ought to fixate on loving one another. We often get all caught up in these rules and these laws and these regulations that we think we have to follow. And Jesus makes it super simple because it was a matter of the heart. He says that if you love God, you love one another. And if this is your focus and your priority, then all is well. Everything was summed up into those two simple commands. And then in John 13, it says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So how will the world know that you're disciples of Jesus? How? Your love for one another. How will the world know that we're Christ followers? Not, not by the way you vote, not by your attendance in church, not by how good your marriage looks, not how, by how put together your family is, not by how vibrant your prayers are or whether or not you finished reading the Bible app plan for the year. They'll know you follow Jesus by the way that you love one another, by your obedience to his commands to love God and love others, not by your obedience to rules and regulations. We often think that the world will know we're Christians by how well behaved we are. As long as we don't smoke, as long as we don't cuss, as long as we don't drink or watch R-rated movies, this is how the world's going to know we're Christians. But Jesus says, no, they'll know you're my followers simply by you loving him and in turn loving others. 
And this actually should be what differentiates us from everybody else, the way you love each other. Because the way you love each other won't be based off of how much you like each other or by how well you get along with one another or by what somebody did for you. It's strictly be based off of loving others with the gracious and generous love that has been given to you. A love that knows no bounds, a love that doesn't come with strings attached to it, a love that simply looks past people's faults and failures because he actually looked past yours. And to be honest, the church has kind of failed in this area. And this is actually what should define us. The, the world should say they're kind of odd, but they love one another, right? They're a little bit strange, and I don't quite get them, but I can't even explain or fathom the way they love each other. And it's always been a mantra for me, for our church, that we would be a people that are known for what we're for rather than what we're against. It's this interesting point because Christians have this reputation of letting everybody know what we're against. Like go down the list of all the things the world knows that we dislike. A ton of them. And it's almost as if, as if the world has no idea of what we stand for because all we've done is tweet, Facebook, Instagram, blog, podcast, our list of what we stand against. And we really should be known more for what we're for. We aren't negative, pessimistic people, right? We're for love, we're for joy, peace, hope. We should be known for our optimism. We should be known as people that take chances on people nobody else will. We should be known for our joy, and this is what sets us apart. It's not about how well we follow rules, how well we behaved we can be, whether we watch CNN or Fox News. It's not about uh, whether or not we read the KGV or the NIV or the ESV or the NASB. We've created all of these dividing walls in the church that Jesus came down from the mountain and purposed to break down. And we begin to put them back up. So the world does not know us by our love. They know us by the walls we've established. Which side of the fence do you stand on? Who are you for and against? Let me know your list of things that you dislike and that the Bible goes against. And why don't you air those things on Facebook and all we do is continue to put up these walls, wall after wall after wall. The world does not know us by our love. They know us by what divides us. Jesus says this in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have for his friends. Jesus says we should love one another as Jesus loved us. And our response to God's love for us is that we should love one another as he's loved us. How did Christ love us? He gave up his life. We ought to be willing to lay our lives down for others. And this whole idea of laying our life down for others isn't necessarily dying for others. It's this idea of laying down. Like actually in the, the original language, this whole idea of laying is that it's actually to lay aside. It means to bend. It means to serve. And so what Jesus is saying is that we ought to be willing to serve others, that we actually should be willing to bend from our own agenda, that we actually should be willing to lay aside our own affinities and put the needs of others before ourselves, that, that we need to put others' well-being before our own. And this is what Jesus asks of us, that we would love one another in this way. In Philippians 2, and I'll end on, on this passage, verses three through eight, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This whole concept is in stark contrast with the rest of society. The world's mantra is what? It's you first. Take care of you. Get what you deserve. Whatever you're owed, get it, even if you have to use and abuse others to do so. Your needs and your desires are more important than anybody or anything else. But the Bible tells us the complete opposite. That we're to love one another in such a way that we should put their needs in front of our own. And just like Jesus, who's equal with God, he emptied himself. And this is what Paul says. He emptied himself and humbled himself and took on human form and became our servant. The God of the universe, he sacrificed his own life that we would find freedom. He came down from the mountain, he became a man that he might redeem us. And we should love one another the same, with the same sacrificial, extravagant, and generous love that Christ had for us. Because the scriptures say that God is what? Love. And if God is love, and God's placed his spirit in you and I, then what resides within you and I? Love. So when we love, it's not with the love that others have that's limited. It's with God's love, loving others through us, this vessel, like we're these vessels, this conduit of his love. I think so many of us think that we can't give others this love in this way. Or we can't get past the walls that have been built up that prevent us from actually serving and loving others and that's why we consider that God's love has to be the one to work through us because we've had an amazing example of love that didn't just do for us but exists within us. And you won't be loving them because you have to but because God does. Um, can you hand me that stuff, Heather? I'm gonna try something here this morning that I hope is gonna work out. Um, I hope this works, actually. I was thinking about this this morning. I saw my father-in-law had this can of shaving cream in the bathroom, and I'm like, oh, I haven't seen a can like that in a long time. And uh, I was, like, looking at the size of the shaving can container in my bathroom this morning, and I was thinking, that thing is tiny, <laughs> I was thinking that there's a ton in here, right? Is this not insane? You put this on your face. <laughs> I'm going to make a Christmas tree here. I think I can do it. It just keeps on going. Nothing outlasts Barbasol. (laughs) 
there's a ton within this little tiny can. And I was thinking this morning, what's it look like for us to love people despite their sin and despite their shortcomings? What's it look like to love people as Jesus loved us and as he gives us the ability and the command to love others? And this is the epitome of what we celebrate at Christmas, a love coming to us that we didn't deserve, a love coming to us that we couldn't create on our own, a love that actually sacrificed all and put others first. And we celebrate the coming of love through Jesus to a world that desperately needed it. And the best way that we celebrate that love this year is actually by loving one another. This little can holds way more than you think it can hold. And as I was thinking about Christ's love this morning, I was thinking, there's more in there than you think. And a lot of you have let your mind keep you from loving others because you think, I'm hurt and I have my own issues. I don't think I have the love to extend that kind of love to others. And I'm limited and I just don't know if I can get past it. I don't know if I can love that person because they've done so many bad things to me. I don't know if I can serve that person because I don't even like that person. And I want to encourage you this morning that God takes the little we have and he maximizes its efforts for others. The little bit that you have met with the bunch that's overflowing more than enough that he puts within you is what the world around you needs. And my encouragement to us, church, is that as we enter into 2020, that we live out the Christmas message all dang year. (laughs) Because it's easy for us to get to December and what happens? We're super generous, there's this Christmas spirit, there's joy and there's peace and there's just like love in the air and everything is awesome. And then we get to January 1st and what do we do? See you next Christmas. I'll have that again next year. I can't wait for December to come so that I can actually feel that again. And my encouragement to us is like, what does it look like for us to live this out all year long? In fact, what does it look like to live this out the rest of our lives? Like this isn't just a Christmas message. It's a lifestyle of love that we set out to pour out, a love with no conditions, a love with no love, a life loving with the love that Jesus has for us. Amen? So as I light this candle this morning, if I have a lighter, this last candle representing love. May we be reminded, church, of the hope that we're anchored to in Jesus. May we be reminded of the Prince of Peace that would rule over every circumstance, hardship, thing that you face in your life. May we be reminded of the joy set before us by Jesus. We don't just get by, we don't just make it. There's this joy that he has put within us that we're able to experience that does not make sense to anybody else. And it's a joy that we choose because we choose to be reminded of the goodness of God and to see his faithfulness in our lives. And then lastly, let us be reminded this morning ultimately of his love because none of those exist without his love. 
honestly praying for us, church, because we talk a lot about like wanting our city to look different and wanting Jesus to move in the midst of it. And the way that's going to happen is not by setting up all kind of social justice efforts around our community. It's going to come because you pour yourself out to your neighbor. It's going to come because you selflessly give of your life to somebody else. It's going to come because your life exists to break down the walls that historically Christianity in America has built up because we're going to get over the walls of the power of Jesus to love and serve those that God has called us to. May they see the love of Jesus in you and in doing so, know who it is that placed that love there. Would you guys stand with me? I want to anoint you with shaving cream this morning. If you come forward, I'll slap it upon your head in the name of Jesus. Who wants a nice dose of shaving cream? (laughs) But I do want to pray for us real quick. Because some of you in this room are thinking, I just don't have it in me to do what Jesus is asking. And I want to remind you this morning that that's a really good thing. Because you can't do it and you don't want to do it in and of your own strength. May Jesus move through you and multiply multiply 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times over what you could do on your own to love and serve and bend to show the love of God to those around you. Some of you in this room, you've never even responded to God in the beginning. May you know this morning that God came down from the mountain to engage you. Though you sit here this morning and some of you are like, I've just done too many bad things. There's just way too much junk in my life. I don't think God could ever love me. And you've spent your life running from him. You've spent your life hiding. You've spent your life sewing up the fig leaves and wrapping them around yourself so that you could be covered in your guilt and your shame. And this morning you're realizing that the things you've manufactured and put together to try to cover yourself up just isn't enough because only Jesus himself can clothe you in his righteousness. And if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, may this morning be the morning that you call upon his name to save you, to acknowledge that he's coming, he's running to you this morning and offering you this opportunity to establish a relationship with him, to be reconciled to your creator this morning. And as we sing these songs to end with, man, I just pray, church, that you would cry out to the living God because there's not one of us in here that isn't at some sort of deficit in our life and doesn't have enough or has enough to go love those that God has asked us to love. Like, we can't do it. But goodness, God is big enough and great enough and extravagant and wonderful enough to provide us the love we need if we just begin to go out and share it with others and he will multiply our efforts. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you, um, Jesus, not just for your church, but for the amazing sacrifice that you paid for your church. Thank you, Jesus, for clothing us in your righteousness. God, I pray for those in this room that are literally sitting there this morning in their guilt and their shame and in condemnation, and they're wondering how they can ever make it to God. And this morning, I pray they be reminded that they cannot make it to you, God, that you actually came down to them. And as you meet them in that place this morning, I pray, Jesus, 
Jesus for your hope and your peace and your joy and your love to emanate, God, to move through them, for your spirit to mark them this morning, that they would realize that they're a son and a daughter of the most high God, that if they believe in you, if they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, they will be saved. And I pray this morning, God, that we put our trust in you. For those who already know you, I'm praying as we leave these doors today, God, that this message doesn't stay put on the stage. I'm praying that it's not just a bunch of shaving cream and scripture verses that we read, but it's in fact your love moving empowering us to actually be your hands and feet in the community, God, that we would love and serve and bend and lay down our lives as you did for us, Jesus. May we be that example for the rest of our city. I pray, Jesus, that your hand be upon your church as they leave this afternoon. May you be with them through this next week as they gather with family and friends. And may the love of Jesus radiate so strongly from them that the conversations that happen around the dinner table and around the Christmas tree be conversations that actually lead to salvation, that lead to others knowing you and seeing you in us. Jesus, I pray for your anointing upon your church. Move through them far more than they even think you can do, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.